Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Stalingrad is burned down. I would have to write too much if I wanted to describe it. Stalingrad is burned down. Stalingrad is in ashes. It is dead. People are in basements. Everything is burned out. The hot walls of the buildings are like the bodies of people who have died in the terrible heat and haven't gone cold yet. Huge buildings, memorials, public gardens, signs cross here. Heaps of wires, a cat sleeping on a windowsill, flowers and grass in flowerpots. A wooden pavilion where they sold fizzy water is standing miraculously intact among thousands of huge stone buildings burned and half destroyed. It is like Pompeii, seized by disaster on a day when everything was flourishing. The city has died after much suffering and looks like the face of a dead man who was suffering from a lethal disease and finally has found eternal peace. Bombing again. Bombing of the dead city. So that was Vasily Grossman, the great uh, Russian war correspondent and novelist writing in his journal about the Battle of Stalingrad in 1942. And Tom, Tom Holland, uh, he compares it to Pompeii. And I guess Stalingrad is a little bit like Pompeii in the sense that it's a sort of byword for disaster, obviously man-made, not natural, but it's also one of those words, one of those place names that just carries this electric charge. So even if you don't know the details of the battle, it sort of represents evil and destruction and horror and bloodshed, probably more than you know, almost any other place on earth. Except that the thing about Pompeii, it's buried. And so the signs of life are preserved and the fabric of the city is preserved. Whereas the thing about Stalingrad is that it's completely flattened. So perhaps a closer analogy, if you're looking to ancient history, would be Carthage after the Romans have captured it or Jerusalem after the Romans have captured it. It's Stalingrad has become kind of shorthand, hasn't it, for the brutality of modern war. And of course, it's also very much in the new you know, people's thoughts at the moment because it's it's the archetype of urban warfare, of modern urban warfare, the idea of of fighting house by house, street by street, and that of course is what is going on in Ukraine at the moment. So um, Putin is massively inspired by the example of the Red Army in the Second World War, but one of the ironies is that that it's Mariupol that is you know the new Stalingrad, uh, and what does that make the Red the Red Army it makes them makes them the Nazis. So a, a good time, I think, to be doing this topic. Absolutely. And um, listeners may remember that we did a podcast about the Berlin Wall with Ian McGregor, who'd written a book about Checkpoint Charlie. And we're welcoming Ian back today on a similarly... Ian, you specialise in these very bleak and grim subjects, clearly. Yes, but I'm not, I'm not a grim and bleak person. Uh, I do try <laughs> to find the light in these stories. Uh, yes, my background uh, in history and publishing history has predominantly been Eastern Europe. So especially uh, World War One and definitely World War Two. So in my pub- with my publishing head on, I've pretty much published 
the majority of books on all the major events on the Eastern Front. And in your, your new book, I mean, it's it's full of new material, but people may be surprised to learn that there's still new stuff to be found about something that's as as written about as Stalingrad. So in what sense is there still stuff to find? Well, it's just trying to drill, especially on the uh, obviously on the on the Red Army side, which we'll we'll dig deeper into as we we talk. It, it's it's making sure that you can actually find original voices that are actually giving you a proper, accurate insight into uh, the fighting, uh, the casualties, uh, the morale, uh, maybe uh, uh, failures in discipline, uh, as well as obviously bravery and who did what to whom and when. And who are the real heroes? That that's the core of my new book. Anyway, is uh, I knew the story uh, of what I wanted to say. I, d- I didn't want to do a kind of overall strategic narrative of the battle. That's as you said, that's been done many times. Uh, the world doesn't need another book like that. Uh, what I wanted to do was is what I do in my publishing is I try and find new voices that tell, uh, give a different angle, uh, give fresh insight, and can sometimes, as I hope I've done in this book, overturn accepted tropes and myths about what is arguably the greatest military battle in terms of combatants, damage, casualties, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that's, that's what it was about. And yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky, and I emphasise lucky, to uh, I, I went to Russia in the winter of 2019 during lockdown, got a special invitation from the director of the Panorama Museum on Volgograd. And I didn't know it at the time, but I discovered it when I was there. I was there for nine days. And when I was sitting in the archive for five days, uh, all the material that I was reading, no, no one's looked at since the 1950s. And 2019... I mean, quite a lot has intervened since 2019 that would make researching in Russia quite difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we'll come to that and maybe we'll come to, because um, obviously one of the, you, you talked about the myths and, and most of the myths ha- have been generated by the Soviet Union and now by, by Russia. So obviously there is a kind of political sensitivity to them that's perhaps sharper than it, it might otherwise have been. But first of all, we, so, so we did uh, an episode with my brother actually, couple of months ago on Operation Barbarossa. So people who want the kind of the full background to the Nazi invasion of of Russia do listen to that. But Ian, could you just just give us a quick reminder of how Operation Barbarossa pans out and what then happens after Operation Barbarossa ends that takes us up to Stalingrad? Well, as as James has eloquently uh, described, Barbarossa was obviously Hitler's uh, and the German armed forces' great gamble to what they thought would be a quick victory over an enormous opponent of the Red Army. Three army groups, over three million uh, Axis forces, predominantly German, obviously, with uh, serious armoured columns, uh, invaded the Soviet Union, going north, uh, centre and south. In a great uh, invasion, the ultimate aim was to destroy the Red Army in that first summer's campaign from June 1941 onwards. As Hitler had obviously said and was confident of, you just had to kick the door in of what he perceived to be a rotten Bolshevist edifice and it would collapse. But as the summer months progressed and going in towards the wintertime, their early successes where they're forging forward hundreds of kilometres with their motorised columns was that they were being met by serious and heavy and fierce and almost suicidal in places Soviet Red Army resistance to whereby the the time of uh, winter 1941 when they're outside the gates of Moscow they 
suffered hundreds of thousands of casualties and hundreds and thousands of destroyed or damaged vehicles, a huge dent in uh, their ability to fight, magnified by the fact that they hadn't taken into account that Stalin would be able to move mass fresh divisions from the the east based in Siberia that were potentially guarding against a, a future attack by Japan. Once that uh, fear was obviously erased because the Japanese were obviously going to attack Pearl Harbor and the American fleet. He moved these fresh divisions over and uh, implemented a, a very surprising for the Germans uh, counterattack, which did drive them back from the capital, drove, drove them back along the thousand kilometers length of, of the frontier. There was localized attacks as well, uh, other than just outside Moscow. So by the spring of 42, they were in a, they were in a, a slight predicament. They'd had a serious uh, pushback from the Red Army. The Red Army wasn't destroyed. Uh, Hitler had saved the day, I suppose, in the fact that he'd given some backbone to his local commanders who wanted to retreat even further and set up a more workable defensive line. They'd held on into the territory. They were deep inside Russian territory. Uh, they surrounded Leningrad in the north. They were still only about 120 kilometers away from Moscow, the capital. And in the south, they they still held vast areas of the Ukraine. So by the spring... Uh, it was, what do we do next on the German side? But equally, from Stalin's perspective, uh, they were busy really rushing together uh, fresh troops. Uh, millions of Russians were now forming up into fresh armies that were being trained and, and, and uh, organized in the east, well out of sight of any kind of German reconnaissance planes. They had no idea that such armies still existed or were coming onto line. So for Hitler, is a case of, right, I've, I've got the Ukrainian wheat. What do I need now? Uh, especially by uh, the, the spring of 42, he's already declared war on the United States. Uh, he knows he's into a, a very long strategic struggle uh, to even maintain what he's got. So he now thinks, I need Caucasian oil. Because all he has is oil from Romania. Romanian oil could keep them supplied to a degree. Uh, but to fight uh, what he knew would now be a, a prolonged war, uh, Germany was still not committed to a, a, a total war industry, uh, unlike uh, the Soviets, obviously. Their, their, their factories were literally pell-mell, pouring out armaments and materiel to, to fight this war, whereas Germany hadn't done that just yet. Uh, so yes, as you said, they were relying heavily on Romanian oil and they had other theatres to worry about. So they were in North Africa as well. That needed oil to carry on. Uh, so there was multiple fronts. There was multiple concerns. And just on that drive for Caucasian oil, in a lot of the sort of historiography and almost in the, what you might call the kind of folk historiography, so in what people vaguely think about the Second World War, Hitler's drive to Stalingrad is seen as this sort of um, suicidal disaster. But on the face of it, you could say that if you're in that position in spring 1942, I mean, you really do need that oil. And the place to get it is the Caucasus. If you get there, I mean, if it had worked out, it would it would look like the right decision, wouldn't it? Or do you think it never would have worked out, this plan? I would argue the same as James I don't, uh, did in, when he was talking to Barbarossa with you guys. Uh, it, they hadn't got, from the research I've done anyway, they, they, they hadn't actually set him plan a process to what would they do when they captured these oil fields the red army is not just going to say there you go guys uh take our oil refineries in my cop and grozny they would obviously destroy them uh but there was never a plan in place for 
specific units. I think there was one battalion at the time, but there was never a, a large scale operation to say once we have these refineries, it will take some time to get them back online and then even more time to figure out how are we going to get the, this oil back to where it needs to be in our occupied territories, whether by land. So if it's going by train, the as we've talked about before, the, 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 the Russian rail gauge was different to the rest of Western Europe. That would have to be changed. You're on, you're on a logistic line of over 1,500 miles, if not 2,000 miles. That would be under attack at some point. So how do you get it safely back? If you go by sea, uh, the Black Sea is still not safe for German shipping, as was proven even with trying to, to get across that short gap of the Mediterranean to feed Rommel's uh, uh, Africa Corps. That was proving impossible to get them uh, oil supplied. So it's one thing having the, uh, the scope to think that's what we need to do. It's very good. But if you haven't got the actual plan in place once your army have conquered the land, then it's, 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 it's a different kettle of fish, really. But, but in what, I mean, what I get from your, from your book is that Certainly, Hitler's enemies were nervous about this. So, the people in Britain are saying, "Oh my God, he he he'll seize these oil fields, then he'll be able to get the Middle East, he'll be able to invade India, whatever." Uh, so, so they're nervous of it. Uh, and I guess that Hitler has three targets, doesn't he? He has Leningrad, and the capture of Leningrad would obviously be a, a great blow. Capture of Moscow, that would be a great blow as well. I mean, it it, it does seem reasonable to say that even more important than these two great cities is the opportunity to get oil. Because even if they, even if the Red Army had blown up the oil fields, surely the Nazis would be able to get them back up and operating fairly quickly. And if they're thinking in terms of, you know, a war that's going to last years and years, then, you know, a few months. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and also the major fact is they're denying this oil to the Red Army. Yeah. So there's that as well. Yeah. Yeah. The, the heavy industry that they've pushed which was an amazing feat to do. They relocated their, their, their heavy industry to the east of the Ural Mountains and kept it safe there. So that, and they, they, re, they rebuilt their, their armaments uh, infrastructure there. Uh, and that would take some time to come online, which explains the weaknesses in, in the, the response to defend the Caucasus and the road to Stalingrad that summer. But uh, you're right. I mean, I, I see that the capture of Leningrad, I, I see is fairly cosmetic. Uh, the capture of Moscow, definitely, a, that would be a huge propaganda boost. But it makes sense to go south. I don't disagree with that because strategically, that's what, what, what you want to do. And they, 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 knew, they knew that the bulk of whatever Red Army forces Stalin still had, and maybe they, they did know he must have some fresh forces coming online, they would be protecting the capital. So if they tried to attack Moscow again, they, they were in for a huge bloody struggle and they would incur probably the same amount of casualties they had uh, the previous summer in 1941. So it, it made sense. Uh, they had already the bridgeheads they needed in the Ukraine outside of Kursk to have the jump off points to go east towards the Volga. And once you've secured the flank, then you would push south to take over the Caucasus. And that, that, that operation, so it's called um, Case Blue. So they they when you look at the chronology they launched at the end of June 1942 they sort of charge across the steppes don't they I mean I've read um uh sort of diaries of, of German officers saying they felt like they kind of Teutonic knights or something <laughs> or like crusaders kind of you know the, the, it's sunny it's summer um they can get food from the surrounding fields all's going well you look at the dates and the progress i mean they're capturing city after city they get rostov on don by the end of july 
Um, they get mic up with this oil fields at the beginning of August. And then sort of Stalingrad comes into view. And Stalingrad, obviously, well, there are all kinds of um, things to say about why why it's Stalingrad. Why it's Because on the face of it, it seems like a sort of a side, it might seem a sideshow. But Ian, tell it. So Stalingrad originally is Tsaritsyn. Well, I, I, it had been around as a settlement since by the time of the Vikings. The Volga's over 3,000 kilometers long, goes from the top of uh, beyond the north of yeah. Moscow, all the way down, pours out to the Caspian Sea. Uh, there's like 500 tributaries and rivers that feed off it as well. So it is, it's, you know, it's simplistically, it's the Mississippi uh, to Russians, really. Uh, it's their great river. And so there were, there's, there's obviously villages that turned into towns that, and then by the 20th century turned into cities stretching along the Volga. Uh, what made Saritsyn uh, so vital was rail coming to it. And I, I liken it quite quite a lot to what happened with the uh, the expansion of industry and cities in the Midwest of America, like Chicago. So as soon as it became obvious logistically and topographically that uh, Saritsyn, it had the river connection, but then they sit down the railway. It's surrounded by the steppe, as you say, where you're growing wheat. It just made sense that that would be one of the main places at that point at the top of the Caucasus that would be a big trading post. Uh, you've got other places like Saratov as well, which is a few hundred kilometers away, but that was one of the main places and that's how it grew. But it really only exploded in growth uh, from population wise as well as industry during the, the 20th century. And obviously that was kickstarted by the Russian Civil War. Well, because I was amazed to le- I was amazed to learn from your book that um, Stalin, I should probably have known this, but I didn't, that, that Stalin had actually been besieged there himself. Yes. And kind of made it during the Civil War and made it into a red Verdun. Um, and, and and is that the reason why, and they hold out heroically and Stalin's a great hero and it's brilliant. And, and that's why they call it after him. They change it. Obviously, you know, you can't call anything after the Tsars, um, you know, in communist Russia. But is that why it's specific to him? It's 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 the city of Stalingrad, of Stalin. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's where he made his name uh, as a, a leader of, uh, or, you know, one of the leaders in, in the elite of the Communist Party. Uh, I suppose he would rely upon that as a, some kind of, he had the prowess of a general as well. I mean, he was parachuted in to, again, put backbone into the city. It's very similar, really. It was surrounded by... Uh, the white armies that were, you know, marauding around the Caucasus, uh, up and down the land, uh, taking out villages and, and towns and cities. And Saritsyn was in danger. It was, uh, it changed hands several times. Uh, but Stalin was the one who, uh, I suppose, gave it the backbone to have the final defense, which is what it's famous for in the, uh, 1920, uh, fought off uh, white occupation. And saved it, but obviously it only changed its name once he'd become leader in 1925. Uh, and that, 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 that's again, that's a, that, that's a propaganda thing. But it was seen. The key thing is skipping forward a decade. Once he was putting into place his five-year plans, Stalingrad then took on another dimension, and it would be seen as a shining example of what the Soviet system and the new economic policies could do. Uh, by taking this small city and expanding it massively uh, to be a huge industrial centre. So literally as a, as a centre for tractor production, isn't it? I mean, I know that sounds like <laughs> from no, a you're right. Western stereotype, but that, that's what really what they're doing, turning out thousands upon thousands of tractors. 
Yeah, backed up uh, well and paid for by American money investment in the nineteen, in the late twenties and early thirties. Uh, the main factories where we see most of the fighting, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So uh, the tractor factory, the barricaded uh, weapons factory, and the steelworks, uh, they were all financed by American money. So you've got, well, I think, about four hundred thousand people there uh, in approximately by the end of the nineteen thirties. Yeah, I was going to say it's about four hundred fifty thousand lived there the majority of which worked in the factory district to the north. So by the time of the Germans arriving, what they would have seen is a city that wasn't too deep as it went along to the river. You, it was probably in, in the most dense place, it was probably five kilometers you had to travel through before you'd get to the Volga, but it was very long. It stretched along the river. It's so kind it's, of ribbon a, development. Yeah, it's about 35 kilometers long, possibly 40. Wow. Like an enormous snake. Yes, indeed. Because in the south, you had the old part of the city, which is quite feudal. Um, there, the famous shots you get as the Germans are going through the suburbs, you've got the, the wooden shacks and two, two, never usually more than two-story shacks that, that people lived in. In the centre of the city, which again is is where you have all the, the famous fighting house to house. That's where you had the modernization with the, the lovely boulevards, parks, shops, apartment blocks uh, for the parties and, and the elites, theatres, everything. And then the bulk of the city was the factory district in the north. And pro- probably about 80% of the population were housed there uh, in their settlements. And again, by the time you get into the third and final phase of the fight for Stalingrad in the winter, that's where the bulk of the, the really heavy fighting was done. Right, good. So that is, that's basically the geography sorted. So um, I think we should take a little break now. Uh, and when we come back, we will discuss um, the Germans' motivation for basically starting the Battle of Stalingrad in the first place. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to The Rest is History. So, Ian, one of the things I've always wondered, and it probably seems quite a basic question, is why was there a battle at Stalingrad at all? Because then the Germans, it, it's not a prime target for them. They could ignore it, or they could bypass it, or they could just turn south once they've got to the Volga, or once they're approaching the Volga, they could turn south and head into the Caucasus. And some people might argue that's kind of what they should have done. Is it because it's Stalin city and it's Hitler wants the psychological boost of of taking it, or is it because of the industrial production and all that sort of stuff? Or is it also because because presumably up to this point the Germans haven't lost, and so are they still convinced basically that they can do anything they like, that they'll always be victorious? Well, that, that, that's the thing, Tom. They hadn't lost, but they stalled. That that was the key thing. So by the time the decision's made to we're going to take Stalingrad, uh, and that's mid to late August. Uh, by then, the juggernauts of uh, Case Blue was was heavily stalled. They were they were bogged down by a myriad of things, which we've taken another podcast to talk about. But so they did had, they need a victory then? Is that the yes? It's, it's purely uh, it was last gasp chance to retrieve something of what was a failed offensive, and Hitler knew that. But Hitler doesn't think it's failed, does it? He he still thinks that victory is absolutely within their grasp. Oh, I, I think by mid to, to mid August to late August, the feeling was in his headquarters that they're 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 not making the headway they thought they would do towards Mykop and Grozny. Uh, and Even though they've they've made a tremendous, I mean, they've covered hundreds of miles again, as they did in a year earlier. But they've just got an incredibly unrealistic timetable. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the the phases. There was four to five phases of what they do on specific times, where they're capturing key transport connections like Rostov or Voronezh, or getting to Grozny or Mykop, uh, heading east, get past the Don Bridge, head head towards the Volga. It was all done on a strict timetable, and. Uh, and like a bit like Barbarossa, they'd launched it a little bit too late because they were they were preoccupied with clearing up the Crimea as well. And once they'd done that and they'd secured their flank uh, on the western side, then it was time to go. Uh, but yeah, it had run into problems that Barbarossa ran into, as in uh, logistical problems, uh, lack of fuel. There was many times as the Panzers, as you were saying about the Panzers heading south and heading east through the steppe, there was plenty of times they had to actually stand in the road and wait for resupply. If it hadn't been for the the, the Luftwaffe, I mean, the Luftwaffe going going down south into the Caucasus, the Luftwaffe was supplying 200 million tons of fuel just to keep them going because there was no logistical connection. The railheads weren't working and the, the trucks are backed up behind the panzer columns. Well, Ian, in the last episode, Dominic disgraced himself by scoffing at the very idea that trucks could be interesting. <laughs> but I, don't, actually, I don't doubt that they're important. I just question whether they're interesting. Uh, well, they are. In, well, they're interesting to the degree that essentially it's not just about our men, is it? It's about the chains of supply. It's always about the chains. It's of always supply. about the chains and of the supply. trucks and and the different gauges and all that kind of stuff. Which which I know that Dominic is absolutely fascinated by. You're talking about gauges. Let me squash you right there. Let's talk about some human beings. So we're talking about the Sixth Army, uh, Ian. That's the mm-hmm. the German Sixth Army and the commander. Um, who's sort of gone down in history as this sort of terrible That's failure. A great loser. Yeah, as a great loser, <laughs> which may be a little bit harsh, is um, Friedrich Paulus. Mm. So he's not meant to be the commander, is he? Because Reichenau, who I think was meant to be the commander, has has died. I can't remember how he's... Reichenau? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and he has a stroke, doesn't he? He comes in for a run that's right, and yeah, has a stroke. It's yeah. a warning against going for too many runs. Yeah, it's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a jogging martyr. Was, but um, was he was he a more effective commander than Paulus 
So, so my things have been different had had he not had his stroke. Yeah, he was a much more well. He was. He, I mean, it's chalk and cheese. He was a much more effective combat commander, frontline combat commander. He's your man. Yeah, I'd want him every single Sunday. Uh, whereas Paulus was a very, very effective planner and staff operator, and that's where he'd made his reputation. He's he'd never really been. Well, he hadn't been a combat leader. He'd never led anything uh, more than a division. Uh, and he'd been he'd been in the, he'd he'd been one of the heads of the group that had war gamed Barbarossa before Barbarossa actually commenced in June forty one. Was that the war game where they said this is going to be hopeless? We haven't yep, got hope. Exactly. And then he, they got told to go away and come up with a new plan. Exactly. <laughs> right. So 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 does he think that there's no hope of capturing Stalingrad? I mean, is he a pessimist about this, or what, what's he thinking? Well, he he's not going to go against uh, the orders against of Hitler, his, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But do we know what what he is thinking? When so so he comes, he's at the head of the sixth army. They arrive at Stalingrad. This massive, great kind of ribbon development along the Volga. Is it his decision to go in? Is it Hitler's decision? If it's Hitler's, is Paulus thinking this is terrible? We're going to lose, or does he think, yeah, we're going to storm this because we're the we're the Germans? What's what's the state of his opinion, and what's and what's the morale of the sixth army generally? Well, the key thing to remember is it, it wasn't a waltz for them. They were they, they, yes, they'd had massive early successes in the summer but the russians instead of the previous as they did the previous year where they were fighting for every inch of ground they were retreating in a uniformed way and obviously especially in the caucasus uh, implementing a scorched earth policy leaving nothing for the germans hitler by 23rd of july hitler was feeling super confident because the, because they couldn't find these these huge forces he suspected were out there that they wanted to as usual encircle and destroy he's thinking well the red army's finished it's on the brink of collapse uh i know what i can do i can now split army group south into uh two subunits and when you army say group- army group south i don't really know what they are how many people are they well, Army Group South was was the force that had been uh, put together by Hitler at the start of the summer campaigning that was going to implement Case Blue. And it's one and a half million men. So what proportion of that is the, of the entire army on the Eastern Front? Is that about half of it or...? Yeah, well, yeah, I'd say just under half. And he'd stripped various units along the whole length of the line, north to centre, to 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 reinforce South for this, this offensive. And that's not just men, but that's aircraft uh, and armour. So they they were giving the bulk of everything. Uh, they tied down the Russians in the center, and obviously they're they're still surrounding Leningrad. So the Russians are still busy trying to to make sure they can try and free the city there. But everything was was orientated for this. But by twenty third of July, weeks into Case Blue being underway, they're believing at uh, Hitler's headquarters that success is on the brink that they could do this because it seems that uh, there, are, there is no Red Army to capture because they're collapsing. So flushed with this overconfidence, he then decides, I'm going to split the, uh, the offensive in two. Army Group A will now push on down to the Caucasus and capture Grozny and Mykov. And simultaneously, and that's the key thing, instead of consecutively, as we talked about, they should do it phase by phase sensibly. He said simultaneously, Army Group B will push east and secure the Volga, stop river traffic, at the time, it wasn't said that they would need to capture the city. It was literally just to occupy the high grounds and the riverbanks around the city and just stop traffic. Uh, but doing that, that's where, to get back to my point about it wasn't an easy ride. By the time this was underway, that's when Paulus and the 6th Army and Army Group B that he belonged to started to really, really meet fierce resistance. Uh, 
suicidal resistance like they had the summer before, where the Russians were now determined to not yield any more ground because Stalingrad's behind them. And Ian, that's partly because Stalin has issued an order not one step back. So the Russians, I mean, they literally can't, they, they may get shot if, yeah. they, if they step back. So that, that's order 227. And that's 28th of July. Uh, and that was, uh, funnily enough, it wasn't ever put out by any of the, the Soviet media or the Red Army media. What it was done was printed out on pamphlets and it was read out to the troops, officers and troops. And predominantly, it was, it was aimed more at the officer class because it was saying that you guys need to show more backbone and we are not retreating any further and any key installations uh, will be held to the last man. And to back that up, he then instigated what's now famous as these blocking detachments. There weren't a lot of units, uh, roughly a, a, a division or you know, a, div- a division of fifteen to 20,000 men. You'd probably have 500 military police acting as their their blocking detachments. But what they did do was uh, situate themselves in key transport areas and make sure they're checking troops. Where are you going? What are you doing? And then the penal battalions. And they had been around uh, the previous year, uh, again, but they, they'd been created on the hoof during the, the days of Barbarossa when it was panic. Whereas in the summer of 42 and Order 227, it was more systematic. So it was specifically planned that we will create these penal battalions. And again, they they were predominantly staffed by uh, NCOs and officers because they were the ones that were deemed to be lacking this this moral fibre and backbone to actually put up a fight. So Ian, basically, the Red Army know that they've got to make a stand in Stalingrad. They have no choice. Just to nail this down. Why did the Germans go into Stalingrad? Are they sucked in? Are they going in there because Hitler's told them to? Are they going in there because they think it will be a walkover? Why do the Germans go into the city? By the time they reach there in late August, early September, they are under orders now to take the city. And again, Hitler has been uh, is famous for saying that the whole male population would be exterminated because obviously it's called Stalingrad. It's a nest of Bolshevism. So that, that and was that's there. very Roman. Exactly. Uh, it's yeah. very Carthage, isn't it? Uh, yeah. And they were going to level and, and the city would be leveled. So by then it was definitely, we are going into the city. You're right in terms of, yes, they were they're sucked in, but again, they were, they were thinking that this is going to be the same as the fighting that they had the previous year in Kiev, uh, that summer, they take yeah. Voronezh and Rostov. As in, the, it would be a fight, a bitter fight, but they they take the city in a week. The bank of the river was covered in dead fish mixed with human heads, arms and legs, all lying on the beach. They were the remains of people who had been being evacuated across the Volga when they were bombed. And Ian, the German attack begins with this horrendous bombing. And you say that it's it kind of, the casualties are on such a high scale that only Hiroshima exceeds them. Yeah. Which is kind of mind blowing. Well, again, that, that, that gets back to my very first point about trying to uh, dig deep enough to you, you, you see if it's actually true. Uh, I'm not, I'm not disputing that thousands were killed. So from August 23rd onwards, that's where the Luftwaffe are operating ahead of the advancing uh, armour of, of Paulus's 6th Army and the infantry bringing up the rear. And it's a terror bombing campaign, as, as, uh, as has been seen in Western Europe. So Rotterdam, that kind of thing, where they're, they're literally blitzing the city. Uh, 
indiscriminate bombing of civilians. And it was wave after wave of unmolested Luftwaffe uh, bombers and uh, dive bombers especially that had free reign across the city. The, the Soviet Air Force had pretty much been shot out to the sky during that, that advance uh, that summer. Uh, they would get stronger. Uh, so these civilians are sitting ducks. They are, but well, the city had been swollen by double its size by the time the Germans actually arrived. So this city of 450,000 was well over 800,000 by the time of the bombings. Uh, there hadn't been that much planning to have any air raid shelters built uh, for the, the, the previous two months once uh, Case Blue was underway and there was a fear of they could push to the Volga and Stalingrad. The civic leaders had turfed out the population to build these concentric circles of defensive rings that went out at least 50 to 60 to 70 kilometers outside of the city and stretched for hundreds of miles uh, and had gun emplacements and everything else. And they had spent no time on developing any kind of uh, uh, air shelters uh, that were strong enough to withstand this kind of bombing. Uh, there were some buildings and there would be later used for the house-to-house fighting that had cellars that were reinforced with concrete. But you, you, you can't get a, a, a 800,000 civilians in those kind of places. There weren't enough of them. And Stalin had forbidden civilians to leave Stalingrad, hadn't he? Yes, because he wanted the the army, the, the the retreating 62nd Army and 64th Army that had been out on the steppe trying to prevent Paulus reaching the city were now the, the remnants of them and whatever artillery and tanks they had left were now ensconced in the city waiting for the final onslaught. It was deemed that they'd fight for a live city better than they would for a dead one. Yeah. So let's move through the, the narrative a bit. So the, the bombing starts on the 23rd of August, um, two horrendous days of just just absolute kind of carpet bombing. Um, quite quickly, the German troops reached the outskirts, don't they, on the 3rd of September. So that's, what, about 10 days later. And then about a week after that, the 1st 6th Army units reach the Volga River and split. Yep. The, the So at that point, you would think, well, the kind of game is up, the, the battle is lost. On the 12th of September, there's an interesting moment because that's the point at which um, the 62nd Army, Soviet Army, gets a new commander, Vasily Chuikov, who's and and his story is the one that you start your book with, with, with his yeah. funeral, because he really is the preeminent hero of Stalingrad, isn't he? Do you want to tell us a little bit about who he is? Yeah, so he's a, a dyed-in-the-wool communist. Uh, he'd fought in the, uh, the Russian Civil War. He's one of several children. Uh, he was born and raised in a village outside of Moscow. Uh, at age of 18, during the Russian Civil War, he commanded his own horseback regiment at, at 18. He won several battles during, as Anthony Beevil says in his new book, a very, very bloody civil war. And he survived that as well. And then he joined uh, full time into the Red Army itself and went through the, the various ranks, uh, more training. Uh, he'd been a very good linguist, spoke fluent Chinese as well. So he was a military attache to China uh, in the 1930s. And I suppose you could say he was lucky. He wasn't in charge of any formation in West on the Western European Russian side when Barbarossa struck. So he was one of the ones that uh, Stalin and the Stavka, his military command, turned to to parachute in to take over a command uh, by the spring of 1942. And he's kind of a hard man, isn't he? Ruthless, Chuikov. But of his time. 
I mean, he's a, he's a committed communist of that era, so he wouldn't think twice. And there are reports, recorded reports of him shooting uh, officers he deemed not to be doing their duty. Well, that would put them on their guard. <laughs> Point blank in the head in front of the troops. That, that's like our podcast producer. That's his podcast. <laughs> um, so, so is it Chuikov who comes up with the idea for the kind of – is for sort of – that they'll defend it house to house. They up close, isn't it? Yeah, well. up close. Sort of these incredibly intimate, kind of almost individual um, sort of gunfights, rather rather than mass sort of pitched battles in the city streets. It's going to be room to room, kind of floor to floor, all that stuff. At the beginning, when he took over the command, he was under orders from uh, Yeremenko, who was his overall commander, who was in charge of operations throughout the city and out to the east, and Nikita Khrushchev who was the political commissar there, who was overwatching everything on Stalin's behalf. And his, his job description was, you'll, def- you'll defend the city or die in the attempt. And he, he repeated that mantra. And they said, great, you, you understand your orders. Uh, and off he went. And yes, I mean, it, it, he put the backbone into the army. He clung on to what was a remorseless advance into the city uh, by the German troops with their, the, the, their way paved by just incredibly violent and powerful aerial assaults. And as I said before, this was unmolested. They, they, they had uncontested skies. They could pick and choose when and where they were going to, to dive bomb or carpet bomb. And they had to put up with this. And then once the Germans were moving in, they then had their artillery. And before fresh troops could come online, what was he to do? What was his only option? And the thing is, is yes, I'm now living and fighting in a destroyed city perfect ambush material because in isn't that i mean that is the great almost discovery isn't it people hadn't really realized this before that actually a city that's been flattened by aerial bombardment you don't just have to surrender it it actually provides a perfect place with which to resist an, an incoming army and that's obviously something that 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 people since the second world war have have absolutely understood but is is it stalingrad that first kind of puts that to the test these are the first people really to discover this. Yeah, in, in, in a mass form, yes. I mean, it's the first time that there's actual official orders of this is how we're going to uh, defend what territory we're clinging on to. Uh, so they were only three, 400 metres away from the Volga to their backs. The bulk of the city, uh, especially in the centre and the south, south had been captured. In the centre, they were almost pushed into the river. They were clinging on. And as you say, if you've got a well-armed uh, defensive unit, primarily with machine guns and submachine guns, the very famous PPSH-40 uh, uh, submachine gun. They used that uh, like confetti for, for the, the Soviet troops there. Uh, it's hard to advance against that. Yes, you'll have aerial and artillery bombardments to pave your way. But as I said before, a lot of the buildings in the center of the city and in the north the factory district, they had a lot of uh, reinforced concrete bunkers uh, or cellars, I should say, that they turned into bunkers. And some of these famous buildings, and one of which we'll talk about, uh, that survived, uh, they're obviously bombed out, but they could still be turned into mini fortresses. So like in Mariupol. Yeah, exactly. And so by about mid-September, I suppose, the two sides of, it's not quite a stalemate, I suppose, but they are fighting now hand to hand it's clear that the the germans aren't just going to sweep to the volga and, and and basically push the the russians into the river partly because the russians are they're fe- they're ferried men across the volga haven't they so most famously um major general rodintsev his 
you have an amazing sort of set piece in your book about him, his his men, his guards unit, kind of going across and mm. and basically getting a kind of foothold. So even at that stage, do you think Paulus and the Sixth Army commanders are thinking, oh? This hasn't worked out as we thought. This is going to be really, really tough. Or do they still think, you know, give it a couple of weeks, we will finish the job? Well, no, definitely on on the on the ground, uh, regimental officers, divisional officers, uh, and even as far as Paulus himself talking to various reporters that might drop into his HQ, were openly questioning how much could they suffer, how many casualties could they take. Uh, in this, what was turning into a bit of a meat grinder, uh, where they were losing whole units in 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 one operation in a day, uh, and how tenacious the Soviet defence were, and as you say, even though they could bomb the Volga with artillery and, and aerial assaults, the Russians were still managing to keep alive the, the supply routes that were trickling through across from the, the eastern shore, where a lot of their landing platforms were camouflaged or if they were destroyed they were rebuilt overnight uh and they were sending them across and and like you said with Redimtsev again what was happening were now the Russian uh Stalin in Moscow with his commanders knew that the main thrust of Hitler's summer campaign was clearly now the south they slowly started to move the 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 armies and divisions that had been coalesced around Moscow to move down south and these were coming in echelon down to the south, so they could only be put in piecemeal as they arrived, and that's what happened with Radimtsev's Thirteenth uh, Guards Rifle Division. He was just one of many divisions that were fed into the maelstrom as they literally arrived. I mean, within twenty-four hours of them landing at the or mu- finishing their forced march to the banks, they were rearmed. Uh, the various stories that you see with Jude Law, Jude Law's in the Thirteenth Guards. I was just thinking about that. The film Enemy at the Gates, when it begins, they arrive at the Volga and there's this incredible set piece where they're, yeah. you know, and they have nothing. Yeah, and that and that's exactly how it happened, is it? They you just arrive on by train or whatever or by truck and you'd just be thrown across the river, you know, off you go into the meat grinder. Yeah, but obviously there was method in their madness. They're, they're, they're putting them into the, the, the weak points where they know the Germans are about to break through. And, and it's just a case. And Chukov was very much like this. He wasn't, a, I was going to say, he wasn't a delicate or, a, or a, you could call an artistic, innovative combat commander. Very sledgehammer. Was it, was it he who said, well, there's, the, the, there was no escape for Napoleonic? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you just go in there and you, you stand and you shoot. Yeah, and it, and in some ways, later historians, especially over the last ten to fifteen years, have, have been more critical of his performance. As in, it was very unsophisticated, and he literally just wanted to bleed the Germans dry, uh, and he did that. Time is blood. That's his famous quote. And time and time also means that it's starting to get colder. Yep. So it's starting to snow. It's starting to freeze. The Germans don't have the right coats. They don't have the right shoes. Tom's always anxious about footwear. Yeah, they, they don't have the right shoes, but but the Russians do. So winter is coming, and this seems the perfect place to, to take a break. So in the next episode, Ian will be joining us again, and we will look at um, – let's look at Pavlov and his house, because that's a key part of the story that we haven't touched on yet. And winter comes and the end of the battle and its enduring significance. So uh, thank you to Ian, and we will see you all next time for more Stalingrad. Goodbye.
Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs>